This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Tonight, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Seriously, don't don't fall asleep. It's not going to be too boring. Stay awake. Because tonight... Evil never dies. Or is that evil never sleeps? Well, either way, welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, episode 36. Tonight, the 1994 film, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I'm your boogeyman, Jeff. And I'm evil incarnate, Harry. (laughs) That you are, my friend. That you are. (laughs) Welcome back to the show, man. It's good to be back. Another timely episode here. We're picking up the pace a little bit. Yeah, get things rolling for the rest of the year and play a little catch-up. So that's good. I'm yeah. glad to be back this quickly. Yeah, no, it's great. And we are into the, the lead-up to the ha- the Halloween season here, which is one of my favorite times of, of year. What about you, man? How do you, how do you feel about the Halloween season? Favorite season of the year. It is my everything. My Christmas, my birthday, my birth. <laughs> <laughs> It's the one it's t- day I feel normal. <laughs> it's the time of year where you get to emerge from your cocoon and yeah, nobody looks at you sideways, at least for a couple days out of the year. Yes. Yeah. So it's one day I can, I feel I don't have to wear a disguise and go out and go, ah, <laughs> I can breathe. I can be myself. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta wear a disguise the other 364 days out of the year. I love Halloween. Long been a favorite since I was a kid, of course, like most kids love Halloween. and But that's stuck with me. Horror movies is a favorite genre of mine, or one of my favorite genres. It was a staple of my childhood and love it to this day. And I do, I think I've, you've come to a couple of these where I do kind of, in my, in my adult years now, I get together with some friends and yeah, we watch some horror movies to the, on the lead up to the special day and just have a lot of fun watching some good horror movies, some bad horror movies. and. I enjoy that feeling, you know, there's a special feeling and it's not just nostalgia, you know, yearning for your childhood. It's, I find Halloween, I mean, other people feel it for Christmas or summer or spring or fall, but I feel there's something really, really tangible with Halloween. It's not just because you see decorations or pumpkins and people in costume. I feel it in the weather. I feel it in, it's a spirit. It's amazing. Every year I feel that way. It's amazing. I think I feel a part of that as well. It's something, something's in the air, the weather. It is a great day. I mean, I'm more, it's more nostalgic for me now because, you know, being an adult, I don't often celebrate. Uh, you still like to dress up for Halloween or is that kind of thing gone away with the childhood? Well, as I mentioned, uh, this is the one day I can actually go outside and be myself. <laughs> so I don't need a, a disguise on this particular day. Yeah. But a serious note. Yeah, I still do dress up, not every year, but I have a couple of costumes, my go-to costumes that I start wearing now and now that I have kids. I try to go out. Last two Halloweens, though, I've been stuck up at a plant way away from home, so I haven't been able, been home for the actual date. So this year, I'm trying to desperately make it home. It'll be a, it's tight. I might be able to make it, but I don't know. So hopefully I can, fingers crossed. Yeah, that's a tough one for sure to be away from home. Not not that I want to belabor this because I obviously want to get to the movie, but what is your favorite childhood costume? Oh, man. I was Doug Gilmore, hockey player, (laughs) and that was one of them. I think the first costume was Spider-Man for me, because that's what my entire family, cousins, uncles, aunts, they all came by. They saw the pictures as well. That's the first one, I think, when I was the youngest. I remember being Superman one year. But I think the funny one was when I was Doug Gilmore, and 
you know, I was young. I did really, you know, you how your parents come with you to hockey and they help yeah. put all your equipment on and stuff like that. So I wore the shin pads and it's kind of funny. Still to this day, you, you can attest, my hockey socks keep falling down. <laughs> <laughs> so there I was walking around in my hockey gear. I was full, fully dressed up, the pants, the shoulder pads, the shin pads. But I was didn't have long johns or anything underneath. And it was pretty cold outside. And my socks kept falling down as I was walking through the neighborhoods. You know, <laughs> that's the one memory I have. It's freezing my you ass st- off. You still need your parents to come by and put on your socks, it sounds like. Hey, it's, it's fooled a couple of defensemen. Well, that's, I can tell you that it's given a few guys double take. There's no doubt about that. It's a definitely a fun time of year. Let's get into the movie a little bit here. So tonight we're talking about Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which was the 1994 release, the last proper Nightmare on Elm Street film before, not including Freddy versus Jason, of course. So why don't we go back in time a little bit and tell me about any recollections you have about maybe not just New Nightmare, but the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise as a whole. Yep, a fairly big part of my childhood. A horror, as I said, this genre is, was a, a big staple of my childhood, but I was more into Halloween and Friday the 13th more than Nightmare on Elm Street. But I did see the original Nightmare and I think Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, when I was pretty young, around that time, like seven, eight years old. And then I kind of didn't see the other ones until I was, a you know, more into my mid to late teens. And that's kind of where it is. I remember watching New Nightmare on TV. I never really saw any of these in the theater. These were all TVs or VHS rentals when I was a kid. I still remember the trailer for New Nightmare. And that's mm-hmm. the one memory I have is seeing the, you know, Wes Craven saying, you know, will you play Nancy one more time? And it looks like it's like a, almost like a parody or a spoof of itself. Mm-hmm. And like Freddy's coming into the real world. And I remember the the glove, the metal glove skidding across just like Evil Dead, skidding across the, the table or the floor. Those are the memories I have of this movie and A Nightmare on Elm Street in particular. Mm. Yeah, for me, the, I mean, the franchise as a whole, I, I think was... I think it's probably my favorite horror franchise, mostly because I was a big fan of Freddy Krueger. I mean, he had, you know, he's obviously more of a campy villain. He has all of the cheesy one-liners. I think that's partly why I loved him. But I love the design of the character with the, not just with the claws, but the makeup always was pretty good. And the costume overall was very, very unsettling. I didn't see any of the films in the theater. I was too young and my parents were definitely not down with letting me watch R-rated movies. So by the time New Nightmare came out in 94, I had seen everything on VHS. They were favorites of mine, a group of friends, and we'd rent a bunch of these movies and like have a sleepover, stay up all night and watch all these movies. So I'd seen everything. You know, I loved the franchise. By the time New Nightmare came out, I was really excited about it. Not just because I wanted, you know, I was old enough to kind of go to the theater to see it, but also just the concept of the film was pretty exciting for me at the time. So, yeah, so that's just some of my reminiscences there. I've actually never seen Freddy versus Jason, which was, I guess, the last appearance of the character on the big screen. That is but incorrect. It is incorrect. Is it incorrect? All right. Well, yeah, you've correct seen me, it. sir. You saw it at my house. What, Freddy those... versus Jason? Yes, you did. Oh, man. I do not remember that at all. You probably were fucking wasted is probably what happened. That's extraordinarily likely. No, no. Because what happened was is you came over for one of those evenings Yeah. where I gather some friends, come over and we start watching some horror movies. But that was one of your picks because you hadn't seen it. But the rest of us had. Huh. And that, huh. that you definitely were there for one, one of those. Well. That was probably um, the same night we watched, what's that called? Cabin in the Woods. I remember watching Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. And then we watched Freddy versus Jason. Ah, 
Well, there you go. I guess that speaks to the quality of Freddy versus Jason. So I love Freddy versus Jason. God damn it, this is bothering me now. Okay, I'm gonna have to watch it again because I do not remember this at all. I can't recall a single detail about it, but that's not the movie we're talking about tonight. So okay. fuck it. Fuck <laughs> all right. God damn it, let's get into this movie here. You ready to go? Yes. All right. Wes Craven's new nightmare. More blood comes a cry from off camera. At least someone around here understands how these movies are supposed to work. More blood! And more blood spurts from the opened artery of the animatronic stump just before a futuristic robotic version of Freddy Krueger's clawed hand is attached. Maybe this is the set of the never-before-seen Freddy X Nightmare in Space. I'd watch the shit out of that movie. We could have had Space Freddy versus Space Jason. <clears throat> anyway, behind the scenes of this new Nightmare on Elm Street, the Hollywood wheel turns. A couple of VFX technicians tinker with the new Freddy glove, while series protagonist Heather Lagenkamp looks on with her five-year-old son, Dylan. Dylan's father and Heather's husband, Chase, have a little fun clowning around on set, but it's not all fun and games when the new animatronic glove starts acting up. Suddenly, it springs to life and cuts down the text like Roger Ebert through The Phantom Menace. This time, it's real blood erupting on set, and the glove closes in on Chase for the kill. Heather wakes with a start at home in her own bed during a pretty serious earthquake. She races to Dylan's room, perhaps worried about seeing five metal claws knuckles deep in her kid. But Dylan's just fine, as is Chase. Just a little earthquake is all. Seems like there's been a series of quakes over the past few weeks. But that's not all. Heather's been receiving strange phone calls as well. And let's not forget the nightmares she's been having. Eh, I'm sure it's nothing, says her husband, the guy who has clearly never, ever seen a horror movie. I'll just leave you and the kid alone in earthquake country while you get stalker calls and have nightmares about that character you fought in the movies who literally killed people in their nightmares. Yeah, you should be fine. After a puff piece TV interview commemorating the 10th anniversary of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, Heather meets up with her old co-star, Robert Englund, who somehow actually looks creepier without the makeup. For a moment, it feels like she may confide in him about her troubles, but she gets called away to a meeting with the head of New Line Cinema, who happened to own the Nightmare on Elm Street rights. He's keen on resurrecting the franchise, and in fact, Wes Craven has been working on a new script for a few weeks now, and Heather is supposed to be the star. Chase is even working on a brand new glove for Freddy. It's gonna be ill! She's not really digging all that, though. She's a young kid now, and she didn't really have any interest in starring in another horror film. Speaking of her young kid, she arrives home in time to find that kid pulling some serious exorcist shit on the babysitter. He's screaming like... like... I don't know, like he just got stabbed in the heart with five sharp knives attached to a boogeyman's burnt-up, shriveled hand. He comes down eventually, just like nothing ever happened. He says Rex saved him. Rex, his little stuffed dinosaur. Rex, his little stuffed dinosaur with four deep slashes across his puffy little body. Freddy versus dinosaurs. Fuck, now that would be a sweet movie. Anyway, this is all getting to be a bit much for Heather, so she calls her husband, who's a few hours away at work on the new Freddy movie. She needs him to come home. Dylan's speaking in tongues, saying some weird Freddy shit, and, well, god damn it, man, get your ass back home. That night, as Heather is reading Dylan a nice, peaceful fairy tale as a bedtime story, you, you know the one where the heartless mother sends her husband to take their two kids out to the middle of the forest to die a horrible death at the hands of an evil witch? I don't know, that one puts me to sleep every time for sure. Chase is driving home at night on the highway. His eyelids sure seem to be heavy, though. If he's not careful, he's going to... Oh, nope, too late. He totally falls asleep. A hand with four blades on it rips through the seat and plunges deep into Chase's chest. And he totally crashes that truck. The police are not long to Heather's house to deliver the bad news, but she needs to see for herself. At the morgue, she confirms not only that Chase is dead, but it seems that his torso was sliced very specifically by four blades. 
Four blades. You mean, you don't, that's just like, anyway, at the funeral, it's a somber scene, calm, tasteful, until an earthquake crashes the party. Dylan has run off somewhere, and Heather crashes face first into her husband's grave. Well, there's the kid. What are you doing down there, you little scamp? Oh, shit, <coughs> there's Freddy. And he's totally trying to pull Dylan and, and Heather down into hell with him. Then Heather wakes up. Her head is bleeding from her fall, but at least the earthquake has stopped, and Dylan is where he's supposed to be, and everyone else seems to be fine. At home later that night, Heather wakes up to find Dylan sleepwalking downstairs. Oh, and guess what's on TV? It's Wes Craven's Old Nightmare, starring none other than Heather herself, getting the shit scared out of her by old Freddy Krueger. Dylan's going bonkers again. He starts reciting the old Freddy nursery rhyme. Man, Heather's got to find some better bedtime material for that kid. The next day, or maybe the next week, Heather takes Dylan to the playground and she confides in her friend John Saxon, old coal star from Nightmare, who played her father. Dylan's been acting weird. I've been seeing some crazy shit. Maybe we're both losing it. That kind of thing. John's like, nah, you two are totally fine. Nothing weird going on here. Strange nightmares, dozens of earthquakes, kid acting possessed. Nope, nothing to see here. In an unrelated note, John Saxon has never, ever watched A Nightmare on Elm Street. After another nightmare and another episode with Dylan, Heather decides it's time to check the kid into the hospital. The doctor has resting skeptic face and thinks all of the craziness is brought on by Heather showing him her nightmare films. She leaves Dylan there for treatment and goes to see the one man who could have insight into all of this. Wes Craven. According to Wes, the nightmares are about an entity. Very old. Very evil. It's concerned with one thing. Killing innocence. And this entity, sometimes it can be captured by telling stories like old fairy tales or low-budget horror films about a child molesting janitor with a burned-up face. The story can hold the entity until the story dies, just like the Nightmare on Elm Street films did. All of this is in Wes Craven's Nightmares and now his new script, which is playing out exactly like the events in real life. The only way to destroy this entity that has now embodied Freddy Krueger is to make one more movie and for Heather to play Nancy one more time. Well, shit just got real. More terrifying nightmares ensue and Heather rushes to the hospital to protect Dylan. Freddy is making his way into the real world now and she will have to face him. After a confrontation at the hospital, Dylan does his best to evade Freddy and runs home across a Los Angeles freeway. Seriously, those freeways have like 40 lanes. It's totally dangerous. Heather follows, and the final battle is about to begin. Heather chases Dylan into the dream world, into Freddy's lair, all brick and big furnaces and snakes and shit. Seriously, for a guy who's only scared of fire, you'd think he'd decorate his lair with fewer furnaces. Anyway, Heather, or Nancy, as she's now embodying the role, plays a little game of cat and mouse with Freddy as he chases down Dylan. And just as it seems it's curtains for the young kid, Heather stabs Freddy in the back, and Dylan escapes. Mother and son trap the bad guy in a furnace, throw the switch, and incinerate Freddy once and for all. The end. All right. That is New Nightmare. Harry, what is your initial word? Well, when you said there are four blades twice, I was hoping you would do the Picard. There are four blades. There are four <laughs> blades. Yes. <laughs> No, I love. Goddamn right, there are four. <laughs> there are four. You're damn fucking right. Like, why is Freddy always like has like these furnaces everywhere? I guess it's because he got burned, so he wants people I, to get. I burned. guess it's like it's. I don't know. It's like it's his nightmare, but isn't he sort of in control of this shit? It's sort of the hellscape. I don't know. Anyways, you're right, but I love the concept of this movie. It's like the galaxy quest of the horror genre. These are the actors who are in a series, which are just horror series, and they're famous and stuff, but they just can't escape it, and then it becomes their reality in a different context, right? Yeah. I was just missing Johnny Depp here. Like, where was Johnny Depp? I, I needed Johnny yeah. Depp in this movie, because it yeah. would have been awesome if he just got whacked one more time. 
Oh man, that'd be awesome if they could have whacked him over and over again. That would have been even better. <laughs> so as he's playing Jack Sparrow and then Freddy Krueger comes and gets him. That'd be awesome. They should just do like a short film of that with Jack Sparrow, with Johnny Depp doing that stupid routine and just stabbed in the neck. <laughs> Savvy? <laughs> just get sliced. <laughs> just give me a bottle of rum. Oh man, <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. No, but I like the concept. I think it's a brilliant concept. It just comes down to the execution, but I love what I hear in the synopsis. It sounds very tight. It sounds like a great horror movie. It's great Nightmare in Elm Street concept of how Freddy can become real. Because that's mm. one concept. I didn't. We didn't talk about this in the beginning. The one thing I like about Nightmare in Elm Street is just the concept of this bad guy is in your dreams. And if you get hurt in the dreams, you're killed in the dreams, you get hurt in real life. That is real fucking freaky because your nightmare can be anything. And that's mm-hmm. where the creativity comes with A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, yeah. is the dream sequences. Because it can be so real or so fantastic, whereas traditional other slashers or you look at Halloween and Friday the 13th, you're kind of just stuck in one type of concept of just the monsters just following and stalking people, whether it's in a home mm-hmm. in a small town or in the woods. That's pretty much all you're getting. Yeah. So you have yeah. those extra layers in A Nightmare on Elm Street, which really make it stand out. And I love the extra layer they add here because as we talked about, now it's becoming their reality or is yeah. it? Then that's what we can talk about. But the movie right. as a whole, it really comes down to the execution. Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about a lot of those points. Because you brought up Johnny Depp, I don't have this confirmed, but I did read this piece of trivia when I was researching the movie, and that's that Wes Craven did want to have Johnny Depp at least as a cameo in the film at the funeral. Right. Uh, he never, you know, he, I, what I read is like he never worked up the guts to ask him. I don't know why you need to work up the guts. He called the guy's agent and see if he wants to be in the movie. But he never did. And then the story goes, he did ask Johnny Depp. We ran into him at some point later on and told him that. And Johnny Depp was like, yeah, hell yeah, I would have done it. But he wouldn't have been getting murder death killed in the movie. So if it wasn't that, then it's fine that he's not there because he Funny needs to. The thing is, is I think the Johnny Depp of now, he'd be all over that if this movie oh, was I made agree. today. Yeah, because especially like, you know, he went into, what is that, 21 Jump Street? Yeah, he had like the two second cameo in 21 Jump Street where he did get murder, death, killed, like hardcore. So I think that was a definite missed opportunity. It's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. And they weren't really doing it too tongue in cheek here in the style of this film. So probably we wouldn't have seen an awesome death scene. Well, we might have, but. Anyway, so just on the trivia vein there, New Nightmare was released October 16th, 1994. It went on to gross about $17.4 million domestically on a budget of $8 million. So it was a modest success. It was not the hit that some of the previous installments were up to this point. Nightmare on Elm Street 4 was the biggest box office success of the series. We have Heather Leggenkamp playing herself or a version of herself. She has a number of acting credits. She does still work today, but mostly, you know, she's done some TV stuff, not too many features. She was in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and Nightmare on Elm Street 3. So Wes Craven himself sadly passed away in 2015. He does have a huge resume, 29 directing credits, a couple episodes of The Twilight Zone from the 80s, which was kind of cool. But he did do some genre classics, Swamp Thing, all of the Scream movies, one, two, three, and four. Jeez, he, he did all of them. Yeah, I think there's only the four, right? He did all yeah. four? Well, if there's more than that, Jesus I've Christ. Just, I've just seen the first two. After the second, okay. I like the first one. The second one after that, I was kind of like, nope. Yeah, it, you know, maybe we come back to that because it does explore some of the metafictional themes. But, well, anyway, 
the last house on the left, the hills have eyes. A couple classics from the late seventies there. So he's done a fair amount there. Of course, we should talk about Robert England as Freddy Krueger, as I've used the term on the show before. A working actor, still working today. Don't we have him a- to thank for Luke Skywalker? Uh, yeah, because they were buddies, they were yeah. roommates, and I think Mark Hamill got the interview or the script and Freddie said go for it yeah i believe that the story is that mark hamill was sleeping on robert england's couch at the time so that's kind of a cool connection he has about 160 acting credits to his name going back to the mid 70s mostly tv serious yeah yeah that's quite a bit because i have not seen him in anything except nightmare on elm street related yeah i mean it's mostly like tv guest appearances so nothing major, obviously. You know, the Freddy Nightmare on Elm Street is certainly his biggest role. That's what he's known for. Even like say, like you can go back to Mark Hamill. Look, mm-hmm. look at him. Like I mean, Luke Skywalker. But yeah. you know, you've seen him in other very small films throughout yeah. the years, or made for TV movies. I have not heard of anything that Robert Englund has been in. Yeah, it's mostly it's mostly like a guest spot on a TV show here and there. So if you don't watch that show, you're not going to have seen him, right? Yeah. And he honestly, very rarely seen him in anything. Very rarely has he done any features. You know, that's kind of what's going on behind the scenes there. Heather Langenkamp. So I, I wanted to dig in to see what, you know, what was based on real life and what wasn't. Heather Langenkamp is, I believe still, but was at the time married to a visual effects technician so they they did take that part from real life they changed the name they did offer him to play himself in the movie but he declined that he's not really an actor so so they made up that character uh, based on her husband she had two kids at the time but they just sort of made made up uh, based on her son and then other than that you know i couldn't find any reference to robert england being a painter or anything like that and that's kind of it there so but they definitely got a a lot of people uh, to play themselves the producer at New Line Cinema, for example, it's a real guy. I know that kid was the in Kindergarten Cop. Yeah, the Girls kid from Kindergarten Cop. Yeah, I always have a penis. Girls have a vagina. That kid. Now, speaking of being a working actor, that kid has a pile of acting credits. He's been working since he was two years old, and yeah. uh, still still works today. Are you he has serious? a ton. Yeah, still works today. Done a ton of work, but again, mostly TV shows, guest appearances, or recurring characters. But yeah, he does a ton of stuff for sure. I mean, he did an okay job considering what he's what he was given. But I don't mm-hmm. recall seeing him in anything lately. But I mean, I'd have to see a picture. I don't know. The picture on his IMDb page is still a kid, Miko Hughes. But yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff never ever heard of. A couple episodes of Boston Public, episode of Veronica Mars, a couple episodes of Roswell, you know, an episode of Baywatch. Hey, you uh, know what? Episodes. Guy's probably still a multimillionaire by now. So. Oh, for sure. I mean, like I yeah. say, I mean, he's still working today. You know, he's a young guy, born in 1986, so he's not quite... Oh, uh, yeah, he's probably going to live the life. He's still working, so he's doing absolutely okay. So, But mostly a lot of TV credits and stuff prior to this movie, even. He's in a lot of stuff. He's in Pet Cemetery. It was his uh, first acting credit. So so there you go. Good stuff. Let's jump into the movie here. Any other thoughts right up front, or shall we just jump in? I guess the one question I have for you is, with the exception of this movie, because we want to leave our thoughts for the end, take yeah. this movie out of the equation. What is your favorite Nightmare on Elm Street? I would have to say, I mean, I would almost always have defaulted to the original, but I like, I actually like the Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. 
Which and, one's that? Uh, and, and which one is this one? Is this number seven, eight, nine? Like- so Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, I think was six. So that was when they killed Freddy off. And then this is seven, I believe. Okay. If I'm correct. I guess I'd have to say the first one, but I do like Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare as well. And I kind of like five also, but the first one, I I guess I'd have to go back to. And the remake sucked. Yeah, the remake was absolutely atrocious. That's garbage shit. Yeah, I mean, the original would be a good one for me. I think I had really fond memories of the Freddy's Revenge in the second one. Mm -hmm. How he kind of takes over a boy's body and becomes Freddy in reality. And he actually comes into reality. So he's not in, I think that was part of, I can't recall, but I think that was part of the concept of A Nightmare in Elm Street Part 2. Is that he actually found a way to actually bring himself into reality. That's right, outside of the dream world, yeah. And And it was... But it was filmed, I had such fond memories of it and I watched it when I was older. Like maybe five, six years ago, and, and it was terrible. So that's what I remember. <laughs> it just ended up being really bad. But I think Dream Warriors was also, I can't recall. I haven't, it's been so long since I've, that's the only other one I remember. I don't remember anything else, even though mm. I've seen the rest of them. But I can tell you right now, just based on my recent experience, I love Freddy versus Jason. That might mm. be my favorite out of even both. It's just so much fun. I love. Probably not my favorite Friday, but the 13th, but I think that might be my favorite Freddy one, is Freddy versus Jason, if I take this out of the picture. I'm going to have to check that out again, because... You were there. Yeah. You were there. Yeah, you no, I... just drunk. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I was certainly drunk. Why wouldn't I have been? Oh, yeah, we were drinking. Pretty heavy. Yeah, no, that's... Of course we were. Nightmare on Street 2 is so bizarre, and just such a departure. It's not a good movie, and it's just so weird. But anyway, let's get back to New Nightmare here. So let's talk about the opening sequence here. We're on the set of a film. Got that prop, that Freddy, sort of robotic Freddy hand. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but we sort of get the switcheroo there where, oh, we're on a movie set and they're kind of clowning around a little bit. And then the glove starts to go crazy and just starts murdering motherfuckers up and down. So did you see this kind of coming as a dream sequence? And what's your opinion of the opening salvo here, which is basically Heather's first nightmare that we see? I love this opening sequence because it's kind of three things in one because you don't really know what it is Mm -hmm. because it tricks you into thinking, okay, this might be just an introduction because it could just be Freddy in his own reality and he's getting ready for an attack. Yeah. Getting ready to start doing his shit and start haunting people. So that's kind of because this is an introduction to a movie. But then it's a movie set. So that's a trickery right there. And then it becomes a nightmare, which is the third, it's, you know, the third trickery. So I love how all of this is happening in the first go. I love the glove, the detailing on that glove. It was amazing. That shocked me when I was watching it. I just watched it yesterday. It was amazing. I love this opening. I thought it was very, very effective. Yeah, I thought it was cool. I really liked the glove itself. I had, uh, it's been a long time since I'd seen this movie. So when I saw the prop. The detailing is amazing. Yeah, the detailing was great. And I was just like, I don't remember it looking like that, but it's no, really it cool. No, it doesn't look like that. It's a new take. No. And, it, and it had like a bony protrusion on the back. Yeah. That's what it looked yeah. like. It looked like, you know, like it was an actual hand. Yeah. It became metal. Like, you know, it's, it was really cool. I loved it. I like the concept where the guy's, you know, cuts his hand off. I mean, presumably Freddy, I guess, or whatever. Cuts his hand off to attach this robotic hand. It's cool. I also really enjoyed, and this is sort of my first hint, that things were not quite as they seemed when Chase is describing the hand Dylan saying like, oh, it's been made with bioorganic grafting, bull tendons, nerve bundles from a Doberman. And so on. I was like, that's really strange. Why would they make it all all of that stuff? So it was neat because they, even though I'd seen the movie before, 
it grabbed me. They caught me for sure. So I thought it was a cool layering that they did here in the opening as well. So we see it's a dream. She wakes up and this is where we get our first taste of the actress Heather Langenkamp's life. Nice house. We've got some earthquakes going on. Her husband is there. Her son. I kind of liked this as well because they didn't live in like some huge mansion. It seemed like a pretty, like a nice house, but kind of a, a regular house. So I can imagine sort of a, you know, run of the mill actor, you know, working couple living in a place like this. It wasn't glamorous or anything. Yeah, I agree. So, I really like the set of the house. Still mm-hmm. homey, but you know that they're, you know, they're still well off, but not showing off. Mm-hmm. And I thought that makes it her and her kid really relatable. Because if they're just going to show them in a spoiled mansion, we'd be rooting for Freddy. Fuck this spoiled bitch, right? We'd be saying, and her fucking kid. So, but it's not the case at all. She's kind right. of just a regular. Because she's kind of like a nobody, and I and I like that as part of her character. She doesn't really think of herself as anything special. And she kind of says that, and they were given those hints throughout the movie. Yeah, that's right. She's just basically a, you know, a working mother, which is cool. I like that as the house is kind of getting rocked around, we get those cracks in the wall. And as they sort of split across, it looks like four slash marks. Yeah, I thought that was kind of neat there. And going back to the previous scene, because Mm -hmm. all of that nightmare ends with her waking up and to this earthquake, is it not? Yeah, that's right. So you see how like the how brilliant the opening of this movie is? That's why I love it is because you had the arm, you had the set. And then you had the people getting killed in the set and it's revealed it's a dream and then you're getting up and then you have the earthquake and it's another tension filled scene and it ends with the four slashes. I love it. These are four set pieces back to back to back to back and I love that. Yeah, it's a great opening. I mean, it's a a really good opening and we see her husband there and he's got the cut on his finger exactly where it was in the film, which was... Or in the dream. I thought cool. Or in the dream. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was pretty cool. We get a little exposition dump. You know, he's like, oh, did you, you know, have you gotten more phone calls? So we get the revelation that sounds like there's a stalker who's been calling her. Apparently in real life, this was a problem for Heather Leigenkamp. She did have a stalker get it and she got some weird phone calls. Wes Craven asked her permission to work that into the storyline. And she said that was totally fine. That's awesome. Such a troop. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. Good for her. That's commitment to the craft right there. Yeah, put my stalker in the movie. That's cool. Yeah. I like it when actors are not just flexible, but can poke fun at themselves in their own lives. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not using this to sensationalize their life in any which way. It's like, okay, this happened to me. It might be a good idea to use this as a backstory about a movie that's really, I'm playing myself. Just like Shatner saying to himself, oh, well, you know, that's kind of why I wish Galaxy Quest was really the Enterprise crew. Yeah. Instead of those other guys like Tim Allen and even those Scorny Weaver. I mean, they did a great job, but how awesome would it have been if that was all the actors from the original Star Trek? Because they all hate each other too. So yeah, yeah. you'd have that drama. And if they were willing to bring that in and be honest and truthful and open, I think that would have been an amazing. No, that would have been great. I've often thought about that as well, that that would have been a huge win if they'd been able to do it. But God damn it, that's a good movie. We should do that movie on the show. It's not really obscure enough, but fuck, that's a great movie. Yeah, Galaxy Quest is pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, I totally agree with you. It is refreshing. I love to see when actors, you know, they go on a show or a movie and they get the opportunity to play you know, themselves or a version of themselves, right? And they'll make fun of themselves or they'll they'll play up. Sometimes they'll play up the more negative aspects of their personalities to be a dick in order to be funny or, you know, I guess in this case where there's some it's scary, right? And pain and she's not super famous. She doesn't, she probably can't afford to have a, you know, an entourage of security guards or anything like that. And some creep is calling you all the time. So good for her to, like you say, to be a trooper regarding that. But 
We get a little insight there. She's got the calls and also she's been having nightmares, which she's reluctant to talk about. And the husband eventually gets it out of her. And everybody in the dream was a real guy. They got these two visual effects technicians, Terry and Chuck. They were caught up like a couple of cheap steaks. And, you know, Chase was looking like he was going to to get it. So but we get that he's going to be going away for work. So we know he's going to be out of the house. We also learned from the newscast that there's been a series of earthquakes in Los Angeles, five over the past few weeks. So we get an idea that there's something weird definitely going on in the background here. But that's the look into their lives. So anyway, moving on from there. So Heather's getting ready to go to an interview that she's got, a TV interview. Babysitter's coming over, and this is where we hear the phone call. And the phone call starts giving her the classic Freddie nursery rhyme. What did you think about what this revelation here that the caller is giving her the nursery rhyme from the movies? Yeah, it was okay. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think it was giving those kind of things away a bit too quickly. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a big fan of all, all the phone stuff. It'd be nice if it was just silence. Because I would like for it to build more like, is this reality mm-hmm. versus is this you know, Freddy, or yeah. we can discuss later this entity that becomes Freddy or whatever it may be. So yeah. I kind of wish it was just a little bit more ambiguous, especially yeah. this early on. I think I agree either a little more ambiguous or I mean, something about it just wasn't very scary. No, it wasn't it's not creepy. scary, not creepy. Yeah. It's also, it's so obvious that it's like Freddy yeah. and him kind of having it up. And it's just like, Ugh. one thing I'd like to say is that the one strength and weakness of Freddy Krueger is that if you build him slowly and he's kind of in the shadows, he's scary. Mm-hmm. If he's revealed fully so quickly, it's not scary. It's just like seeing, saying, oh, well, Jaws was, he saw Jaws right at the first scene, the whole shark, and through the whole movie, it wouldn't be as effective at the end, which is true. And I think that's especially true for Freddy, even more so than a character like Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. Mm-hmm. Those guys, you feel the dread through the whole movie. When you see them, you don't see them. That atmosphere stays consistent. Freddy's a bit more of a humorous character, as you said. So mm-hmm. in here, they're playing off of that more humorous side, especially on the phone. Tonality, it was more humorous, not mm-hmm. scary. And I didn't like that at all. Not only are you revealing it's Freddy right off the bat, but then it's like, eh, it's kind of, you're losing some of the dread already too, so quickly in the movie. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, he's a tougher character because of some of the campiness and the humor that he has. But he can also he can be creepy if, if you build it right. And you're right. They kind of get they kind of just get right out of the gate with it, which doesn't I don't know. It doesn't. Yeah, it, there's not a lot of dread here. I did like when she picks up the phone and it's the limo driver. She's like, stop calling me, you son of a bitch. And he's like, your limo is here. I don't know. I got to chuckle out of that. So. She heads to the studio to do her TV interview. And I kind of like this interview because he keeps asking her questions and he's being a bit of a douchebag because, you know, she's clearly uncomfortable. She tries to answer and he doesn't even let her talk. He just keeps pounding her with questions in order to sort of set her up for the reveal that, oh, there's Robert Englund in his Freddy gear and he he comes out. They kind of startle her a little bit. I thought it was a pretty effective scene there. She's clearly uncomfortable and this guy was a total douche to her. Yeah, I agree with you, but I also like when Robert Englund does come out as Robert Englund playing Freddy Krueger in reality, not trying to be scary, but based on the lighting, you see her as he's waving to the fans, 
mm-hmm. she's still the way he's lit makes him yeah. scary, and that's the yeah. kind of stuff I like. Yeah, because then because now they're bleeding into like it's you know it's real. We know it's Robert England in the makeup, but yeah, she's sort of seeing the classic Freddy Krueger as we would see him on screen as the character, the scary guy. And you're right. That's that's all on how they lit that scene. They did a pretty good job there, and they have a little exchange after the interview. Seriously, man. I mean, Robert Englund's a creepy looking dude. It's not just me, right? No, no, it's not just you. I mean, he's, he's not an ugly man or anything like that. He's no, just, no, no. He's just, uh, I mean, just... He, he looks fine. It's just, it's just the way, I, but you also I don't know how he's acting. I'm sure he's not like that in reality. He's probably just, he knows he has to play himself in a certain way. Otherwise, people will just think of that when they see him later in the makeup. If he's yeah, really it... kind of like down to earth, kind and warm, he kind of has to kind of stay stoic and a little bit and kind of semi creepy right yeah they needed to play him sort of a or he needed to play himself as a little bit more of an unsettling type of presence definitely not a comforting father figure or anything like that i I, kind of like their little exchange there i thought it was funny but no i liked uh, it i'm happy that he got a chance to get out of the makeup yeah and you get to see him walk around and there's some other scenes with him later in the movie that i enjoyed every scene he was in out of the makeup too yeah as as himself i i wish we would have seen more of him actually i thought we needed to see him as more of a character but we can talk about that as we go so she heather gets a call Heads to New Line Cinema, where she has a meeting with head of the studio, and he's talking about resurrecting the Nightmare franchise. And we get a few hints here that things are a little off, not just with her, but with others around her as well. So he tells her that Wes Craven's working on a new screenplay. She's going to be the star. And right away, she's like, oh, he, you know, is he having nightmares again? So is this Kathleen uh, Kennedy's Lucasfilm office or? or yeah. <laughs> I envision the New Line yeah. Cinema office. <laughs> yeah, no it's kidding. like, uh, you know, what's the nightmare today, Kathy? Oh, <laughs> you firing another director? Okay. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, Lucasfilm is a nightmare on uh, Elm Street for film directors, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah, New Line Cinema, I figure, would have been in a warehouse somewhere, but I kind of like the look of the office, the set. It was very mundane, just is like an office. office it's just made for the, t- for the I, I That I don't know. I couldn't find that information, so hard to say. My guess is it was probably a set. Uh, Come just on, I'm disappointed, Jeff. You should have flown out there and done the research. Yeah, we'll write that into the budget next time. we, we got to do on-location research. <laughs> Yes. For sure. I'll fly to California for that. No problem. But it reminded me of last episode when we did Network, when we saw the the newsroom, the bullpen there. It looked like a very authentic office space. Mm-hmm. And this struck me sort of the same manner. It was just, you know, there's cubicles, secretaries, people going about their work. It's not slick or cool or glamorous. And I like seeing behind the scenes like in movies, when Hollywood is portrayed behind the scenes, sometimes they're busy jerking themselves off a little bit because they're all from Hollywood. So they like to play it up and make it all glamorous. And this is much grittier. Yeah, gritty might be not too strong a word, but it, no, it I think just it's, that's, felt that's like accurate. A, that's an accurate yeah. term. It's, it's down to earth and gritty. And who's the guy? Like, is this the real studio boss that she met? At the time, yes. Yeah. So that's not an actor. That's the actual studio head. That is correct. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. See, I love that. Yeah, me too. I love that too. And I wish they had done more of that. Yes. That should be more. Yeah. It was good. I mean, you you know, he's always, you can tell he's not a great performer or anything. He's, he's giving it a go and she starts probing a little bit. So he, she's like, well, Wes is starting to have nightmares because he's writing another movie. So there's sort of a hint at some backstory there where she knows that the nightmare films are based on his nightmares, which is sort of partially true. 
But then he starts asking him if anything weird is going on, and he sort of blows it off. You can sort of see underneath there. We get the idea that maybe there have been some weird phone calls. Maybe there have been some weird nightmares. So I kind of like that. I thought that was that was kind of cool. I mean, there wasn't overly played up, and it could go either way. Like they're just imagining it, or or maybe there is something going on here. So I think overall, pretty good scene here. Mm-hmm. I agree. But you do start to get the feel that something is not right with everybody. And I like the fact that they didn't expand it too quickly. They took their time. And that's something I love about the first half of this movie is that they really took their time to really lay the groundwork. They didn't rush it. There wasn't a lot of, you know, superfluous crap that was happening. Every scene had sort of a purpose. I mean, Mm -hmm. it wasn't perfect, but I like that they took their time. It was a slow burn leading up to the second half of the movie. Yeah. So she gets back home. Dylan is acting up. He's screaming. The babysitter can't. She doesn't know what's going on. And they managed to calm the kid down, but he's definitely freaking out. He's screaming lines from the nursery rhyme again. And he says he's been protected by Rex, his dinosaur. And I kind of like the scene where, oh, you know, she pulls the dinosaur out, the stuffed dinosaur, and it's got the four claw marks deep in his body there. So how did did those claw marks become red? Now is the doll bleeding? I don't get it. No. Before it was just the white fluff stuffing coming out with the claw marks. And then all of a sudden the claw marks, the stuffing is red. It's bleeding now. Is that what the hell is going on? Yeah, they did make it red, but it, that was when she had, after the babysitter had sewn it up. So the threads were red. Really? That was a yeah. shitty sewing job. <laughs> wow, I mean, shit, he was in pretty rough shape, dude. I mean, she's lucky that she got him back together at all there, let's face it. No, that was a shitty sewing job. I'm sorry. Well, I mean. I, I call it as I see it. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> fucking babysitter. Do a better job next time. <laughs> sewing together a fucking dinosaur that's been torn apart by a supernatural entity. Fired. Fired. <laughs> So, again, so it starts to escalate with the kid a little bit, freaks out Heather, and she calls Chase, who's working away on the new Freddy glove, presumably on the set. I don't know what, a few hours away. So she asks him to come home. And right away, I mean, he starts, you know, he's driving on the freeway. It's nighttime. You see him doing the head bobs in the car. I mean, this dude's finished. You can tell right away. He's toast. Heather's reading Dylan uh, the the bedtime story here. And I, I kind of thought, I did think it was humorous that she's reading um, Hansel and Gretel. I mean, it's, I know it's a nursery or, or an old fairy tale, but like it's a pretty terrifying thing to read to a small child when he's Already clearly having nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. she's not winning Mommy of the Year award here. No, she's not. Like, were there no other Disney tales available to read the poor little kid? So we cut back and forth between that. We go back to the dad in the truck and, you know, he's doing the he's doing the head bobs. And we see the gloves kind of coming out of the thing there. I, I don't know. I, I laugh when he just sort of scratched his dick there with his, <laughs> his forefinger. <laughs> there, I like the humor of Freddy Krueger. Yeah, that's a very, very Freddy move. That's, there, a, that's sure. a Freddy move. The anticipation, I'm going to, you know, grab your balls. You're going to have red balls, not blue balls when I'm done with you. Yeah. But then why did he go for like the torso scratch? You know, he should have yeah, just well, taken the balls apart, right? But I guess, I guess they did that so they could reveal the scratches and in the morgue later, you know, without having to show a <laughs> guy's junk but yeah exactly she'd be like could you lift up can you lift up the sheet there no 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 from the, no, no. From the other down, end from the other <laughs> end yeah <laughs> i need to see it one last time yeah i, yeah, I have to be sure exactly yeah, that's all i remember of him <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know the face no i don't know i can tell you uh, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah that's him that's yeah, him, that's him. Mm. Still a pretty gruesome death for the dad and... I'm a bit disappointed uh, in the first real death here. 
I wish it was a little bit more fantastic. It's well, very simple for Freddy Death. I suppose so. You can't blow your load right away, though. I mean, you gotta you gotta build up to you do. But then the, we'll talk about the other Freddy Deaths in this movie. Yeah, we will move on. He's dead. Yeah, he's dead. He's toast. And the cops show up to bring the news. And even, you know, obviously she's broken up over it, but perhaps not too surprised as it sort of intimated that she may have seen his demise in a dream as she's, you know, wakes up from some nightmare when the cops get there. So she goes to the morgue. Before we go to the morgue, so let me just interrupt here. So I want to get your impressions on the acting then here. Okay, sure. So especially because she's the main protagonist. Yeah. You know, obviously she's no Meryl Streep, but what do you think of her performance thus far? And in this scene, because I really was not impressed. I get something a bit more here. Yeah. In the earlier scenes, I was fine with her performance, although I had concerns early on. But no, I, yeah, she shows herself to be not a terribly skilled performer here. She's not awful, but you're right. I wanted some more. uh, Yeah, I needed something more. I can give, you know, some of the other people a break because they're not actors, as we've talked about, but. Yeah, she wasn't great, uh, unfortunately. So she didn't really have the... Well, I, I don't know what. I mean, I, you know, she doesn't... You're right. She doesn't do a horrible job. Yeah. She's not like, oh my God, cringeworthy. It's just I needed something more. She was devoid yeah. of some deep level of emotion or at least portraying that. It's a little wooden. Yeah, there's not a lot. I mean, we can talk about overall later, but I mean, I kind of found the same... I had the same issues with some of the other performances as well. It just didn't, it didn't get there for me. Totally agree. So... When she arrives at the morgue, though, I kind of liked this scene. She walks in, and you don't really see anything that's going on, but you can hear somebody crying hysterically off in the background. Uh, You can hear a bone saw going off in the background. (laughs) Yeah, because it was weird. It wasn't even just that. She walks in, and there's mm -hmm. other people performing autopsies. Yeah. In this general room, and there, you know, she's able to just walk in here. So, yeah, you're considering this a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Is this a dream sequence? Now, I can't even remember if it was. I don't think it was. No, the morgue sequence isn't a dream sequence. Yeah, so that was really Uh, weird. I was expecting this to be a dream sequence. And that is so strange. Uh, She's walking into any arbitrary place on the morgue level, and she just can walk in and just say, oh, I'm just looking for my husband's body. Yeah, you know what? Back there, can I see you while I pass, like, five or six other autopsies that are being performed live? In Los Angeles there, I mean, they're probably lined up in the mid-90s. So I bought it. I thought it was totally believable myself. I mean, it's just a workplace. I mean, most morgues probably are just a place where people are working. Yeah, there's bodies around and stuff, but you probably could just go and walk in if you knew where it was. Maybe. I just found that a little weird, but maybe you're right. And like I say, in L.A. in 1994, yeah. Well, there's no deep level of commentary here with respect to urban violence in any area <laughs> no. of L.A. here. This is not no, what Stephen is talking about. No, I just it felt authentic to me because sometimes when you see in TV and the movies, you, you know, the morgue scene is a common one. And, you know, you got this... You know, you're behind the glass and the screen and it's a big, it's all a bit, always a big production. And I figure, and I've never been down to one. It just strikes me. It makes more sense that it's just a place where a bunch of people are working. That makes sense to me. I don't know why. But this is where we, you know, she sees that the body, there's evidence now, like, you know, he's in a car accident. He wouldn't have those wounds like that, right? That would be very unusual. So now we, you know, this is probably our first indication that what's going on is very real. We have some very good evidence to suggest that it's real. But I, I did like the morgue scene. I thought it was creepy with the noise in the background, the lighting. I wouldn't say scary, but I found it creepy. Hmm. Anyways, so we go to the cemetery next and the funeral. 
this is kind of where we sort of, well, I guess we get introduced really to Freddy. This is, I think, where we first see the new Freddy's face, the new glove in its entirety, as he's sort of pulling them down through the bottom of that coffin. I thought that was a pretty cool shot when she jumps into the grave there, and then like underneath at the bottom of the coffin, there's that opening, yeah, into hell or wherever that, you know, Freddy's down there pulling Dylan down into that. What do you think? You think that was good or? No, I uh, loved it. I love that aspect. But the one thing that I did not like is, because this is kind of our first glimpse of Freddy's face or one of the earlier glimpses. I think that we missed maybe another traditional boo scare when he came out of a closet. Maybe. Oh, right. Yeah. That might have been the, I think we maybe missed that part. But here we see a lot of detail in Freddy's face, but for some reason, it didn't look good. Hmm. I was not a fan of the makeup on Freddy in this movie, but it seemed to be that a lot of work went into it, but it, it just looked fake. I don't know. Did you find that in this movie? I don't know that I would say that it looked fake necessarily, maybe more constructed. I mean, you know, in the other movies, you know, it looked like it was melted off or whatever, and this looks somewhat... I mean, I know they were going for a slightly different look with the makeup because this entity. So I I think they were trying to go for a more demonic type of look. I wouldn't say I thought it was fake, but it didn't seem natural, I guess, uh, in the sense that, like I said, it seemed like a construct. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just There was just something that bugged me about his look mm. that I didn't like in this movie at all. And it'll continue later as he wears a trench coat. And as you said, maybe this really isn't Freddy Krueger. It's that entity that Wes Craven mm -hmm. is talking, right? Right. Yeah. So who's kind of chosen Freddy as his form, mm -hmm. but, which is a very interesting concept. But I just didn't like the look of him in this movie as much as the other ones. Yeah, let's get into that later when we see him in the full costume with that. But yeah, I think there's definitely a conversation to be had here. But the whole funeral thing ends up being a dream. You know, she wakes up, everything's more or less okay. That would have been awesome if it was Johnny Depp for the funeral and he's the one who goes in to save her and he gets sucked in. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have the news, Johnny Depp lost forever. That would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah. A strange man's funeral. <laughs> Either that or just a fucking branch from a palm tree crushes the skull in the earthquake. That would have been fine too. That would have been a good joke, actually. That would have been funny. So... That night, Heather and her son are in. It's at night, and they're doing the whole, you know, the talk there. He's wondering uh, where daddy is. He's gone to heaven. And, you know, this scene, you know, it was all right, I guess, for me. Like, I understand that this would probably be a conversation that uh, a mother would have with her son if, you know, the dad died. The kid's this little. I mean, they linger on it too long. It doesn't have any real resonance with the storyline. Like, it's not a religious storyline and they talking about heaven and god and it didn't do anything for me i think they probably could have done away with this scene here in the night what do you think to be honest i don't even remember the scene at all so i okay. guess that's a tribute to the effectiveness of it yeah there you go i mean the only thing that it kind of does is speak to the next scene where they're in the playground and she's you know dylan's playing in that sort of spaceship shaped playground apparatus what the fuck is with the window that opens at the top now, is this just because the entity is allowing that thing to open? Yeah. That was a little weird. It's pretty fake. There's, you know, it's kind of made up so that they can get him on top of this thing. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I agreed with you. I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> so whatever. Um, so she said they're talking with the actor, John Saxon, who played the father in the original film there. Mm -hmm. I kind of like them. I mean, it's brief. They only have a couple scenes together in the film here. But they kind of had a good sort of father-daughter dynamic, even though they're just co-stars. Right. And I kind of read about that where she's 
you know, she does credit him with sort of mentoring her on the set of the original one there because she hadn't really done too much acting before that. He's he'd been more experienced actor. So I thought this was for me as is one of the more authentic relationships in the film there where they're talking about, you know, is he crazy? Am I crazy? I thought that was pretty good. But again, speaking of scenes that could kind of get cut out, I mean, he's up on top of the spaceship or rocket thing and then falls. I mean, he's pretty high up there and he lands on her at full speed. Nobody's injured here. I mean... Okay, but I want to say something here. I agree with you. In reality, both of the kid and the mom would have probably suffered multiple broken bones when she caught him. I mean, you know, kid may not have died either. It's not, you know, kids have survived bigger drops. Oh, yeah. I loved the fall. I thought that was filmed really well, actually, when Mm. he actually fell off of that. So I did like this scene. The lead up to it was kind of corny. I get that she's kind of distracted, so she's not watching the kid, but she already Mm -hmm. knows the kid's having issues. So, I mean, you know, watch the kid. You know, when I'm at the park with my kids, I don't really rest, especially with a kid that young. I'm watching them like a hawk. So, but I get that she's distracted. So whatever, it's also a movie. But I did like the fact that the filming of that looked pretty good. And if you notice, after the fact, she does have a limp. So, I mean, I'll give credit where credit is due. She doesn't just have a limp for one small scene. I think she limps for the rest of the movie, even before she gets hit by a car in the third act. Like she was limping continuously. That's right. Because of this. So I'm giving a lot of credit to both Heather Langenkamp and Wes Craven because a lot of other movies, you know, whether we've talked about them or not, you know that, oh, someone's hurt. Oh, he'll limp for 10 seconds and then he's fine the next scene. Yeah. So she or she she carries that injury for the rest of the movie. And and I appreciated that. Even though I think she should have been more injured. I agree with you. Yeah, maybe she should have been. Yeah. And she carries the scar or wound on her head through the movie as well. You're right, yeah, she does carry the limp through the rest of the movie, which is good little detail. I like attention detail in films. That's you're right. That's a, that's a it's a good touch. So we move to Heather going to see Robert Englund or not going to see him uh, talking to Robert Englund on the phone, sort of probing for information there. So she almost jokingly or embarrassingly admits that she's been having Freddy nightmares and this is where he's painting. This is where he's painting. And yeah, I love exactly. this scene. I love yeah. this scene. Okay, so tell me why you love this scene. Well, I mean, for me, this is just giving the indication that, you know, because before it's like you just don't know if it's just happening to her or it's all in her mind or she's just having dreams and it's just herself. But now you get that this is your first real confirmation because you got the nugget at the other office the New Line office before and stuff like that. Here you get real confirmation that it's happening to everybody. Yeah. Because you see what he's painting. You see all the nightmare, like the ghouls or the ghostly faces. And then when the when the scene ends, you see it's Freddy Krueger who's haunting all these people. That's what Robert Englund is painting. And I love that. I thought it was a good buildup. I love how Robert Englund is distracted. It's not like amazing acting by either of them. But I love the lead up and I love the painting. I thought it was amazing. I love the scene. Yeah, I love the idea of this scene. They had the concept spot on. But for me, unfortunately, because the performances were just not that solid here, I was frustrated with this scene because it felt to me like they were not, I don't know, they weren't talking about, and this happens in a lot of movies where they don't just say what's going on. And I know that. But that's the you know, trope of the genre. I know. And it's so frustrating. And it's fine if your performances can sell it. You know, if the movie can sell that situation, then fine, then it works. But I don't think that they did a great job of selling it. 
here. I just was, I was just frustrated with it. And this um, is where I would bring it up in my final comments, but I just wanted to drop the idea that I think what would have been very interesting in this movie is a deeper explanation or a deeper investigation of showing all of these people who were in this series or in the movie, original movie, and you see it happening to them. It's yes. not just Heather. Or yes. they actually were filming a new movie and then shit was happening on set. Yes, yes. And that, uh, I think, yes. was a huge missed opportunity. Yeah. No, I you totally had, agree. had the beginning where it was on set, but imagine if the yeah. whole everything, like there, it was just like almost like, you know, the Kirby Enthusiasm Seinfeld yes. episode. Yeah. And, and you're having all of the stuff, like you're actually filming the movie, yeah. but shit's happening behind the scenes in reality. And the yes. entity is coming out. I thought that would have been way more interesting than what we got. Yes, I totally <laughs> agree. I had the exact same thoughts. That would have been awesome. Let's, we should circle around that at the end here because we want to make sure we don't get too off track. But yeah, totally, totally agree. And like how obvious, like you not only you start off this way, why wouldn't Wes Craven want to continue that way? It seems it's, like such an obvious way to proceed with this movie. Yeah, it's almost like he had the idea of Heather being the main character and like being around sort of her life. And then he built on top of that around it and didn't... Because then you could have gotten rid of the kid too. Yeah, you could have got rid of the kid. I mean, maybe he wanted to have that emotional core of the mother-son thing going on there. I don't know. But yeah, I completely agree. I mean, what if this movie had been yeah, on the set, like Robert Englund would have <coughs> had a prompt, more prominent role. Even Wes Craven could have had a more yeah. prominent role. And yeah, on the set, I mean... And then he could have gotten yeah. even more Johnny Depp. Could have got some Johnny Depp in there. And then he's like more of a diva. And then you could really make fun of him, right? Oh man, that wouldn't that have been great? Yeah, <laughs> and he's like popping well, in he, between different roles too. He's even, yeah, every, every scene he's in a different makeup. I'm doing 20 movies at once. You bring some of that classic nightmare humor in there with that. I mean, and yeah, and have him just get brutally murdered, which would have been uh, absolutely <laughs> hysterical. Yeah, yeah. That, that'd be great. Anyway, unfortunately, that's not the movie we got. Uh, we get another dream sequence or another nightmare. You know, she's in bed, and we kind of get the glove coming up out of the bed there, tearing the sheets. So, kind of see well, Freddy sort of making his way further and further into the real world. That's sort of what it feels like. We get sort of more physical evidence of him uh, coming into the real world. Dylan's, again, and, freaking out with the and, Freddy rhymes. And this is why I want to just go back to, I think, if I'm pretty sure you saw Freddy versus Jason. But, sir, there are some of these concepts that I think you would really enjoy that you're kind of hinting at here in this movie that you're kind of wishes that you would get explored a bit more in Freddy vs. Jason. All right, I'm going to cue that up maybe this week. Just, Do it for uh, Halloween. You lead up to Halloween. Yeah. All right, well, if it sucks, you owe me two more hours, though. That I think you will find aspects that you will enjoy. But from my memory, you loved that movie. I'm sure, once yeah. you watch 20 minutes, you'll say, yeah, I saw it. You're probably right. Okay, I'll go back and check. I kind of want to watch the whole series now. It's been so long since I've seen any of these now, so maybe I'll just marathon the shit out of these films. Anyway, right. back to the game here. So as it comes along, so, you know, Dylan's freaking out. A couple episodes, this is where she finally decides to take him to the hospital. And the doctor is like, hmm, well, you know, is there any history of epilepsy, mental illness? And she's like, because uh, she's had history of mental illness that she's confided earlier. You know, she's like, have you been showing him your movies? So she's being a real bitch. 
to her to leave it anything and doing a good job. I don't know who that actor is, and I know her from something, and I couldn't find her. I'll tell you right now, she must have been in Star Trek. It seems like she must have been in Star Trek, but I can't think of when. I'm sure she was in Star Trek. Okay. It has well, to be. Or Seinfeld. It has to be something like that. But I don't think it's Seinfeld. I'm pretty sure. I don't think it's Seinfeld. It could be Star Trek. I'm going to go look. I tried to find out, but I couldn't find her character in the listing there. So anyway, that's not important. So she leaves him in the hospital. She keeps telling him that home's right across the freeway, which is probably not the thing to tell a little kid. Do not mention the freeway. So, you know, we know that's going to come back to, oh, to yeah, bite no. us. I know. She says it like twice or yeah. times before the actual event. So it's like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's actually really true. Do not tell your kids things that because they'll remember and actually go do it. You have to be that's really right. careful. And I know that as a parent. Yeah. Right? Especially three times. It's yeah. like Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice. Like, don't say it three times. Yes. Like, come on. Good call. So, not a smart thing to do. Anyway, so she tries to get in touch with Robert Englund again, but he's taken off. So, she goes to see the man himself, Wes Craven, at his house. And he's describing what he understands, you know, her nightmares to be about, which is also what his nightmares are about. So this is where we get his idea of this entity that exists that can be trapped in stories. This old, old entity that just wants to kill innocents. And as the conversation progresses, we see that, you know, this is what's made it into his script. And, you know, after a while, it's like, hey, we're not really talking about the script anymore. This is what happens. And unfortunately, because the Nightmare on Elm Street films are dead, and this these were the films that had trapped this entity, and now the entity has become Freddy Krueger because it got so used to being Freddy Krueger, that's now what it is and the only way to trap it is to make another film. Wes Craven's acting ability aside, I mean, I think he does a serviceable job here. I think this was my favorite scene of the movie. Yes, it was a great scene, and yeah. it's kind of interesting because, you know, you have to, I, you may know trivia or behind-the-scenes stuff, but is this Wes Craven trying to say he can't even escape the nightmare himself? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Also, his life has become Nightmare on Elm Street. That's all he's, you know, kind of really going to be known for, even though I know you said he did other work and some of his other genre f- uh, horror films are okay, but really, it's Nightmare on Elm Street. It is, yeah. And yeah. who knows, maybe... You know, just like how James Cameron had the nightmare about the Terminator, did Wes Craven have the nightmare about Freddy Krueger and to develop this concept? And maybe, you know, that's kind of an interesting facet to his subconscious. I don't know. I'm just, you know, venturing a guess. Is he having this commentary about himself by writing this movie? Yeah, I think it's certainly a fair question to ask. And this is part of what's fun about the concept here, this, the metafictional aspects of the film where it gives the the creator, the writer, a chance to comment on how this entity that he's created is, you know, has now sort of burst forth beyond his control, which is very interesting. And I, I mean, I definitely think that it... I was hoping George Lucas would have done this with Jar Jar Binks, like he would be real. <laughs> I don't know that the real world can handle too much Jar Jar <laughs> Thanks, but for sure he'd just get fucking run over. He'd get run over by a truck in four <laughs> seconds, just by accident. Like a piano would fall on his face. I mean, he'd be done. He'd um, live through the whole thing. It doesn't matter. He's not forgotten. His spirit lives on. Well, his spirit lives on. Uh, uh, well, hey, like they say, evil never dies. So. <laughs> 
thinking of a new nightmare, and instead of Freddy Krueger <laughs> fucking coming out of this, right? yeah, Jar Jar Binks, like it's the next, the next anthology film, right? <laughs> yeah, he kills everybody by them being embarrassed to death to be around him. <laughs> anyway, so back to the scene here. Yeah, so I, this is I thought was such a great scene and such an interesting exploration of the creative process. And like we've been saying, I mean, that's kind of what happens is. If you're a filmmaker, you know, he's, he's a screenwriter, he's a director. And then once you create this thing that you've created, it's then out there in the world beyond your control. And then, you know, by virtue of that, it can come back to control you. I mean, that's what he's going to be known for. He's done other things, but that's definitely what he's going to be known for. And even if it's not Nightmare on Elm Street, he's not going to be known for being Wes Craven, you know, bearded old nice dad or whatever. He's going to be known for the guy who did Nightmare on Elm Street or the guy who did Scream. I mean, those are the things that will control his legacy. I wish we could have got a little bit more exploration of that, but, you know, then you run the risk of it being too much, right, over the top, which we, you know, which we want to avoid for sure. So I have a question for you before you move Yeah. On. Is this the reason why you picked it? Because of this concept? Mostly, yeah. I figured. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely the most interesting aspect of the film. I mean, I picked it because I think it's probably the least thought about, you know, just from an obscurity standpoint, the least thought about Nightmare film. You know, people remember Freddy vs. Jason and like Nightmare 1 through 6. You know, everybody's kind of got a feel for that. This sort of sits you know, in a sort of a middle ground where it doesn't get talked about. So that, you know, it's partly that, but I thought that this was such a unique idea. Yeah. So that's why I picked it, which is a long answer to your short question. Anyway, Heather's doing some research on, you know, some child schizophrenia, illnesses, the schizophrenia, the sleep deprivation and things like that. She comes to the realization that the sleep deprivation and the symptoms of his illness are kind of one and the same. And perhaps the sleep deprivation, as she knows from playing Nancy in the films where everybody's trying to stay awake because you got this fucking guy trying to kill you, kind of makes you a little nuts. And then another bomb drops. She's watching the TV as those two visual effects technicians that she saw get murdered in her dream at the very start were, in fact, for their bodies were found. And the glove that they were working on, the Freddy glove, is missing. So I love that. That was cool. I thought that yeah. was cool. Nice yeah. little touch. Yeah. Yeah. Good touch there. Because we got the hint earlier where her husband had mentioned that they hadn't shown up for work that day way back at the start. And now this is coming back around full circle. Those guys were dead. So back at the hospital... Thankfully, the babysitter has miraculously shown up out of nowhere, so we know that she's cannon fodder. This whole dance here seemed a little bit choreographed to me, where they let the babysitter in, and she's hanging out with Dylan, while Heather's been taken with security guards, talking to the doc. The whole thing just seemed a little bit contrived to me in order to get somebody alone with Dylan who could get murdered in spectacular fashion by Freddy. So I didn't mind the uh, setup because it felt grounded and real because she just wants to go home to get the doll, which is stupid because she should have brought it to begin with if she was yeah. a really good mom. Anyways, that aside, it's a real situation where the doctor is going to be pissed and they're going to have an honest conversation with the mother because the doctor thinks that this is all her fault because she's showing the movies because the, the kid's quoting all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Yeah. So I didn't mind that. We know why it's happening. So yes, it's a setup so the babysitter can get killed. What I didn't like maybe you touch on that too is the way the babysitter got killed because it was the exact same way as the in the original movie yeah. with the guy being or the girl being brought up to the ceiling and killed and and I thought it was less visually interesting because it was not lit very 
interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it felt very on the cheap. Whereas the original ones, when that happened in the original movie, I thought it was filmed very, very well. Creepy, very scary. Here it was more like, you know, Freddy's kind of doing a little dance. The camera angles are wrong. Freddy also looks wrong. I'll go touch on the Freddy stuff again. I don't like the way he's looking here. It's not that it's hammy, it's, but it's not scary or dreadful yeah. or anything. I was really disappointed in the Freddy scenes in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. The scene that it's echoing from the original there where the, the girl gets pulled up to the ceiling. I mean, that was such a spectacular scene in the first one. It was so, I mean, it looked great. It was so visually interesting. It felt very grandiose. They did a great job with it. And yeah, this felt like a cheap knockoff version of that scene. It just didn't feel right. The camera angle didn't feel right. Even Freddy didn't look right. The costume feels off. I mean, with the makeup being different, but the rest of the costume kind of being the same with the with the sweater. I didn't like the trench coat. You know, the hat's fine. He doesn't even have the hat here. I don't think he really wears the hat for much of the movie. No, he doesn't. You're right. It feels off in this scene. And I guess the reason why I say it's contrived in the setup, I mean, you're right. I mean, I bought the piece with the doctor being pissed off and basically accusing the mother of all of these things to cause the kid's illness and how you know, frustrating that would be for the mother because she can't really explain what's going on because this shit's crazy. That part was fine. It was just the addition of the babysitter to the scene of a character that we had already seen to, I don't know what, to have more of an emotional impact when she gets eviscerated on the ceiling there, perhaps. But that would have, you know, more likely that it would have just been one of the nurses that would have had him. I don't know. It's a small gripe, I suppose. But I did like um, the little scene of the nurses tricking the mom and the babysitter about giving him the shot so he can go to bed. And then the babysitter says, I know it was in that, but do you know what's in this? Yeah, I like that too. scares the other nurse off. I loved that scene. I thought that was great. But I thought like the room was just down the hall from where the doctor is with the mother. And like she's getting caught apart on the ceiling there for like three and a half minutes. Nobody's running down there to check on like uh, you hear some screams in a situation. It just seemed like a long time before they finally ran the 12 steps down the hall to, to I'm find I'm going to let a, that go because that's a horror trope. I've seen enough horror yeah. movies. That's par for the course in horror. Could have been tighter. Could have been tighter. But I agree. But that's par for the yeah. course for horror. That's in every horror movie. Yeah. Well, I want a below par. <laughs> you should be shooting at least one under on a movie like this. Come on. <laughs> they need some birdies and hole-in-ones, eh? Yeah, exactly. That's Jaws and Alien, my friend. Wow, those guys are shooting holes-in-ones all day long with their eyes closed. It's not even a comparison there, let's face it. I agree. Okay, good point. All right, so the kid escapes somehow, all this sleep medication on the freeway. I really did not like the freeway sequence. It was very obviously green screened, and I know that's what you got to do. It felt really phony to me. I just I didn't like it. I felt it was unnecessary tension. Interesting. I am completely in the opposite camp. Okay, I let's hear it. it. I, no, I, I just loved it. I thought it provided much needed tension. The only mm. thing I didn't like was Freddy's magical godlike finger or claw finger lifting him up. That was yeah. corny. Yeah, that was Lifting corny. the kid yeah. up. But I loved the car screeching and moving and avoiding both Heather and the kid. I thought that was a great scene. The music was amped up. It was high energy, high tension. She got hit by the car. I thought this was all really good stuff. And hmm. the green screen, I know there was a couple of shots of obvious green screening or matte shots, but I loved it. I remember it even in the trailer too, how she kind of ducks down and goes under the, you know, the huge semi-trailer. I love this scene. I'm surprised you didn't. 
I forgive it for how fake it looks because, you know, it's it's the mid 90s and that's just, you know, you, you're limited by the technology. So I don't have a problem with that. But yeah, the Magic Freddy finger was definitely not for me that was bad but i just didn't think it was necessary it didn't really have anything to do with the movie so i don't know i thought they could have spent this somewhere else but you know regardless he makes it across she makes it across and then back in her house she starts this is where it gets uh, weird because now the house yeah and john saxton and everything because she's not asleep that's right yeah so i understand that freddie is kind this entity is kind of coming into her world yeah but how does the house get transformed into the house from the original movie and how does john saxon or saxton become her dad and the cop and magically change clothes and all of these things unless she's asleep um did i miss that part yeah because it seems that she doesn't fall asleep yet because she starts taking the sleeping pills after this you're right so that's i just want to refresh my memory did she start swallowing the sleeping pills after i don't think so i mean it was after all those other scenes happened like the house got transformed and john saxton became the cop yeah so that was really weird that was weird yeah in my notes here, we're back on Elm Street, basically, with the house, and she's in her the original costume from the first one, and John Saxon's there in his cop clothing and all that. But it felt to me like, okay, so the fantasy world's starting to bleed into reality here, but there wasn't really an explanation for that, because she should be dreaming at this point, but she's not, because she starts taking the sleeping pills as she goes yes. back into the house. So, so it would have been made sense if it was reversed. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense so maybe here. It was now, an editing issue. Yeah. Except when she starts taking the sleeping pills, though, she's are her costumes already changed. So okay. So then it's a script issue. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a script issue. And if they had, you know, like we were talking about earlier, if this has all been part of them making a new movie, a new Elm Street movie, and it had been on the set, then you could have pulled something like this off. Because, you know, like you kind of on the set or if reality and fantasy are starting to bleed into each other, then maybe it makes sense. But here it doesn't really make sense outside of it being the metaphorical, as Wes Craven had said earlier, like, are you willing to play, you know, come down to if you're willing to play Nancy one more time. And this is her being Nancy one more time. So all of this is changing around her in order to signal to us, the audience, that yes, she is now Nancy as she prepares for the final battle. That's the metaphor, but narratively, it doesn't make sense. No. You know, like emotionally, it kind of makes sense. This is what has to happen. But as far as the story goes, it doesn't make sense. Now, what I did like is as she starts taking the sleeping pills and she's like under the covers there and like starts going deeper and deeper. And it's basically like a sweet like bedsheet for it that she starts falling I know, deeper it's awesome. and deeper into. That was yeah. a great shot. As she keeps sliding yeah. more into the depths of hell or in the depths of Freddy's reality, it slowly transforms from a bedsheet for it into Freddy's furnace or basement or whatever. Yeah. 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 That was a great transitional shot. I love that. Yeah, that was very cool. I mean, this where she's kind of falling. That looked okay. They did what they could there. The look of Freddy's lair, I thought, was a good look. But again, I do, as I had joked about earlier, you know, lots of fire and brimstone. I know it's sort of supposed to also be kind of a hellish dreamscape, but... I can let it go. And now that I think about it, it's like, well, Batman's afraid of bats. Why is he in a bat cave? Right. Yeah. by bats. So bad. This is Freddy's cave. You know, what fuels his hate is fire. Yeah. Okay. Like Darth I mean, Vader's castle now on Mustafar. Yeah. You know, that he's okay. going to build it where he kind of was. So I'll let it yeah. go. It okay. fits the trope and it, it makes sense. That's okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll accept it. Objection sustained. I get it. So how does the final battle play out for you? I, Attack yeah. of the Clones level garbage shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Again, Attack of the Clones. I'm sorry, Attack of the Clones. Well, it's Attack of the Clones' fault for being what it is, so... It's pretty bad. This is a very poor third act. Final showdown. I mean, the set design is fine, even though I think it's a bit small for what it could have been. The one thing I did like is the prosthetics used when Freddy Krueger is actually trying to eat the kid. (laughs) Or the entity is trying to eat the kid and the mouth is growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Or the arm is stretching out like Beetlejuice longer and longer and longer to grab the kid. But it's too hammy and dumb that, okay, the kid climbs into the deep end of the furnace to get away. Okay, that's fine. Seems a little weird. I'm going to climb into a furnace to live. It's on fire and it's not hot and the kid's pretty comfortable in there. But, you know, Freddy can't climb in himself. Like, what's going on here? The door's not stuck. He's not trying to open it and he's not trying to get in. And it's just a setup so Nancy can come when she comes to her senses oh, I can come running in and stab him in the back. And this was really poorly filmed. This is Well, he could obviously fit because they shove him in there, right? Yeah, so, and then he gets in there yeah. later. And this has been done how many times in Nightmare on Elm Street now? A where few. they finally yeah. push him into the furnace and he gets burned and dies again? Yeah. Like, yeah. Again, this is how we're resolving this movie? Are you kidding me? Ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, it was so bad. It was really silly. I mean, we get some of the Freddy goofy tropes with his arm stretching and the tongue wrapping around her and and some of the one-liners. And it's not scary at this point. He's being the old Freddy when, you know, really it makes more sense for him to be this evil entity that has taken on some of Freddy's characteristics, but he should be a lot darker, a lot more menacing. And he isn't. And you're right. Like, this is how they resolve it is they throw him in the furnace and they burn him. I mean, it's too simple and it doesn't have any... There's no scares. There's no fun, right. too. I right. mean, how many yeah. times does Freddy, in these jokes in these movies, that Freddy's tongue gets longer to wrap around or lick somebody? And, you know, we had that scene in the phone again where his tongue comes out when she yeah. was talking right. on the phone before in the movie. And these are just replays of other movies. Did J.J. Abrams write and direct this movie? Or was it Wes Craven? <laughs> I mean, I'm well, there would have been more less. There would have been a lot more lens flare if J.J. had directed. <laughs> I'm surprised. Like, I'm really surprised. That they go down this route. And it just seems like, you know what? They thought the concept was good. And when they got to the third act, it felt like, you know, shit, I think this really was... I I really kind of want to go home. I'm kind of done with this. So let's just get all the regular tropes out there. Oh, do we have the old tongue we used before? Let's get it around here again. I just kind of want to go home and go to bed. Yeah. So it's lazy and it's terrible. I was shocked at how poorly Mm -hmm. this was filmed. Well, especially when you consider like, you know, such a great idea for the film. It's new, it's fresh. And then they get to this point and they don't have any new fresh ideas. It is the same thing that's happened. Like you said, it's the same thing that's happened every single time, pretty much. You know, going into the dream world and then burning him in a furnace. I mean, there should have been a much better resolution around the, you know, the fantasy reality. I kind of wanted uh, to have like, crossover. I kind of wanted to have like all of a sudden Robert Anklin shows up and it's like Decker in the motion picture and he goes, Jim, let me have this. And he ends up kissing the entity. <laughs> they merge into a new life form. <laughs> and the world yeah. is a better place now. And that would have been an all right ending, actually, something like that. <laughs> Robert Englund and Freddy Krueger making out for all eternity or some shit. <laughs> Anything would have been better than what we got here. Yeah, no, it, it definitely falls a little flat. But that's pretty much it. So they make it out of the dream world. And then for some reason, she's got the script for New Nightmare in her hands there as they tumble out of the bed sheets. And it's exactly written. It's exactly. They're supposed to say and wrap the movie right. up. And I like yeah. this concept that it's 
kind of like, you know, all of this stuff became their reality and their yeah. destiny. But that was the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie and everything in between was not that. That's right. Yeah. And that's just what the missed opportunity is. I agree. That's the movie. So let's talk a little bit about speaking of the missed opportunities. I think that's kind of the story of the film here is is missed opportunities. We already talked about it. I mean, wouldn't this have been such a better movie if it was about, you know, Heather Langenkamp? Okay, that's fine. She can be the protagonist. But I wanted more Robert Englund. Like, let's bring Wes Craven in there. And, you know, I mean, we joked about Johnny Depp, but you didn't get to add him or any of the other previous stars. And you can, hell, you could uh, have even brought in Kevin Bacon and Matthew McConaughey and Jennifer Aniston and Jamie <laughs> yeah. Lee Curtis and all of these other people from the other movies, and they're just having a party. And Freddie wipes well, them sure. all out. That's a really good idea. That'd be hilarious. But like, you know, I know we're joking, but like, you know, concept like that where you know these actors are on the set and you know this weird shit starts happening because Freddie is trying to come into the real world. That would have been so much more interesting than you know we get, which is kind of a run of the mill. Yeah, because this uh, is what we talked about. Like Freddy's a Fred, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, where Freddy's literally taking over yeah. the body of this guy who's living in Freddy's house yeah. to come into the yeah. real world. That's now, right. Imagine yeah. if this movie, and it's really about getting revenge if it's the entity who's living. And imagine if Robert Englund was struggling with this. And it was actually taking over Robert Englund. Yeah. And then he still goes after Heather and she has to play Nancy one last time still, right? Yeah. And she has to save Wes Craven or Wes Craven dies or whatever it may be. They could have been all of that stuff as they were making another movie. Yeah. And I thought that would have been really, really cool. That yeah, that would have been really oh, interesting. Man. Yeah. Talking about it now, it's like, wow. It's just two of us talking about it over the course of an hour. These guys couldn't have done this over the course of like weeks and months of script writing process. Yeah, I'm surprised too. Like, what movie did he want to make here? What movie did he think he was making here? Because I can't imagine that, yeah, all these cool ideas. I mean, something must have occurred to him. So that's why I think he must have been trying to tell a different story. And that being said, I mean, this idea, like this, the metafiction as a concept in film was pretty new. I mean, it's 94. I mean, we've had, you know, Scream comes after this, which is a bit of a different take on metafiction, but. We had that adaptation with Nicolas Cage, which, you know, that's similar ideas and did a really good job with it. Fuck, there was that uh, Nicolas Cage should have become Freddy Krueger. Well, that'd be terrifying. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> terrifying and awesome. I'm going to have that nightmare tonight. I'm pretty sure it's going to be <laughs> Nicolas Cage as Freddy Krueger. Actually, that would work. That would work. There was that Will Ferrell movie, Stranger Than Fiction, again, so it sort of had some similar concepts. So I'll give it credit for, you know, as far as I know, being an early example of this kind of thing. So maybe they just, it hadn't been developed enough for them to go all the way, but still a huge disappointment, huge disappointment in that unrealized potential. But speaking of that, and we also talked about the performances, you know, we have a few people here playing themselves. So, you know, we have obviously Heather Legenkamp playing herself, Robert Englund the same, Wes Craven the same, but I mean, they're not really playing themselves or playing a fictionalized version of themselves. So I had the thought, like, how difficult would that be? Like, is it tough to portray a version of yourself as opposed to a totally fictional character? I do it every day. <laughs> Play a fictional character? You <laughs> of course. I put on an act. Yeah, no, and, and you're a terrible actor, which is hence the result of your... Hey, I'm still employed, so that says something. Well, that's a good and point. And I haven't that's been arrested. <laughs> That's because you're playing a totally fictional character. If you were playing yourself, you'd be on a street corner somewhere with... We'd all be in trouble, my friend. We'd all be in trouble. That's true. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I guess that that's that <laughs> point. Uh <laughs> I'm with you. I mean, I missed opportunity 
even though I like Star Trek Generations, but whenever I think back on that movie, mm. despite mm-hmm. its strengths, and it's a much, it has much more strengths, positives, and pros than this movie. But I think of, there's a missed opportunity with Star Trek Generations. Um, Force Awakens for me is a missed opportunity in different aspects. This is even a greater crime has been done here with respect to missed opportunity because yeah. you start off with the right approach in the first scene of the movie. Yeah. It's on a set. Things are happening. Some strange shit is happening and you don't even continue down that route. And it's yeah, really weird. Yeah. It's really yeah. strange. It's a basket of missed opportunity here. I think that's sort of the story. So why don't we sort of segue into some of our final thoughts here and get into our typical recommendations. So what are your final thoughts, Harry? Anything else that you want to bring up that we might have skipped over? The only real final thought, and I've already hinted at this before, is just the concept of Freddy Krueger. I love the concept of this guy, this monster who could get you in your dreams. And the line between dream and reality becomes blurred. And those new layers should have been added to that movie here. And I think that's always been the strength of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And then, as I said before earlier in the podcast, when you get into the dream reality, you have a lot of creative freedom to make things get really fantastic and sensational and be entertaining and scary. None of that happened in this movie, even when they were in the dream sequences. The more I see Freddy Krueger in any of the movies, I get less scared. And maybe that's kind of the point. I really don't find Freddy Krueger when I see him that scary, but the concept is scary. And it's a shame that most of the movies, most of the sequels, I think the first one did a fairly good job, but most of the sequels have just hammed him up. And there's nothing really hammy in this movie. And I found that kind of strange too. It was just like they went through the motions. Because Freddy Krueger, mm-hmm. this entity really even wasn't Freddy Krueger. Now, if you go yourself now, go watch Freddy versus Jason, you will see the hamminess and some of the scariness of Freddy Krueger back in that movie. And it's a blast because they honor Freddy Krueger and Jason and they merge it together. And it's like the black and white cookie in Seinfeld. You know, you just hold it up and nod to your neighbors and, it, you know, you bring the world together, <laughs> right? <laughs> Look to the cookie. Look to the cookie. You don't get any of that good stuff here. And I think that's a big problem I have with Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger's in general is that tonally they've never found the really a good balance except in the first one and then maybe Freddy versus Jason. And, and that's in my opinion. Yeah, they fell into what I felt was a fair amount of mediocrity. There wasn't a lot to love with respect to performances or direction. It was a fairly bland looking film. And yeah, the tone was all off. You're right. I mean, I see what you're saying about the Nightmare on Elm Street movies as a whole, where after the first one, Freddy's not really very scary. He's It's very campy and jokey. But that's what I always liked about him in those movies is because of how silly it was, you could really get, or at least for me, I, I got a lot of fun out of seeing the, the creative ways in which he dispatched his victims. He never really yeah. felt too bad for anybody because it was all You're kind of in good Freddy, fun. Right? Because it's yeah. all in good fun and you want to see exactly. the unique ways, but you don't get any of that here. No, here you don't. And that would have been fine if they had really played out the horror aspect of that character or this entity that they had created, which had sort of taken on some of Freddy's characteristics, but they didn't even do that. They kind of played it down the middle and they didn't do anything interesting visually. They didn't do anything interesting with such a fantastic concept. I mean, it was laid out for them to be able to do so many interesting things here. And they just fell. I don't want to even say it fell apart. They just didn't even really build anything here. It was just a lot of mediocrity, which is God, it's a goddamn shame. It's what it is. So, That is really too bad. 
we spoiled the ending here, but why don't you give me your recommendation? And is this a rare antiquity? The concept I could label as a rare antiquity, but the final product is a definite no, not even close. And it is not a recommendation even in the genre category. It's unfortunately, I'd have to see all the other Nightmare on Elm Street ones, but hard to say where it ranks because I don't remember many of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. So I won't do a ranking there, but no recommendation for me either. It's a very low stay away. It's not even a recommendation. Stay away from this movie. Yeah. It is too disappointing. I expected a lot more. Yeah. This is a rare antiquity for me. No, it is not. Other than the concept itself, there isn't anything unique or interesting here. And that almost makes it worse because it's such a great concept and they really dropped the ball with developing it. And I really wanted to be able to at least recommend it to fans of the franchise but I even think that that would be a disservice to fans of the franchise. If you like the Nightmare on Elm Street films and you have skipped this one in the past, then you can go ahead and continue on skipping it. Yeah, move along. Nothing to see here. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for New Nightmare. Today's show, Harry, why don't you tee us up to what you have in store for us next time? Well, I hope I will not give you a new nightmare with my next pick. This is a genre that we have typically avoided completely, uh -oh. uh, except for maybe one of your picks, which can be partially fit into this genre. Rom-com genre. I thought we would dip our hands in that. Not our favorite topic. As we go back in time in 1987 and review Patrick Dempsey's Can't Buy Me Love. I'm speechless. <laughs> and it's not Patrick Dempsey's movie. He's just stars <laughs> Have we done a rom-com on the show before? No. Well, we did your White Christmas. Oh, well, that was a Christmas movie. That's, That's a Christmas movie. So this is our yeah. first dip. Our toes will get a little wet in the rom-com genre. Have you even heard of this movie? I have heard of it, but I definitely have not seen it. You have definitely not seen it. So yeah. that was kind of the goal is finding something that's, you know, not a typical well-known rom-com from the past. I have seen this one before. We'll give any other thoughts away, so I'll be interested to see how I react this time around with a little bit more of a critical eye on it and what your take will be. All right. Well, yeah, that should be should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Well, I will see you next time and sleep well. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. <laughs> yes. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. All right. Good advice. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.